what about my faith, about my walk with spirit is giving me, is animating my life, giving me a peace that passes all understanding or giving me, inspiring me to be kind and gentle to everyone I encounter, kind and gentle to myself. There should be something different about me if I am walking with the divine. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted, humbled, honored to bring you the Reverend Naomi Washington Liebhart. She is an ordained clergy person, the director of faith-based and interfaith affairs in the Office of Public Engagement in the city of Philadelphia. And on top of that, she holds faculty appointments at Villanova University and the Harvard Divinity School. A quick but important content warning off the top. We talk a little bit about political conflict, including the January 6th attack on the Capitol building. And we talk a lot about Christian hegemony. And we do get into some specifics around clergy scandals. If these are not the right things for you to be listening to right now, feel free and switch this one off and we will catch you in the next one. We go on to talk about protecting one's joy, the moral and ideological crises facing ecumenical Protestant Christianity, Philly, sports, the future of theological higher education, the continuing impact of the pandemic on faith communities, and most importantly, the importance of not going to work hangry. This conversation just absolutely blew my mind. Please enjoy my chat to Reverend Naomi. So I, I want to start with something that we were talking about right before we turned the mics on, and we are taping on Friday, October 28th, at a very, at least, less miserable time in Philly because the Phils are in the World Series right, this year. Right, 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 right. <laughs> are you as excited about this as I am? I'm excited about it, not because I'm a baseball fan necessarily, yeah. but uh -huh. because of the energy change I sense in the city. Yes. People are nicer. Yes. People feel like this is a win that we can finally embrace fully. Yes. Uh, and so, yes, I'm excited. I hope they go all the way. I, I, I hope, I hope they go all the way. The two. I, I, I am very not sporty. <laughs> okay. I know a decent amount about um, soccer, mm -hmm. and I know a tiny little bit about competitive sw swimming. Okay. Okay. That's it. <laughs> and um chess hmm. that's that's it okay. so so i understand that it is it is accurate to the rules of the sporting event to say that i hope that we are done in four <laughs> see you sound like a professional 
if you want to moonlight as a sports commentator, <laughs> that's you're halfway there. That's very kind. Um, <laughs> I would I would say that most of that is um, good genes and just like Asian glow, like <laughs> like be, being born like being born with a level of testosterone <laughs> that affords me NPR voice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> this is NPR, like live from WHYYY Studios <laughs> in Philadelphia. And I say thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I'm putting the cart before the horse, but. Um, yes, absolutely. I'm so glad to have you, Reverend Naomi. Um, we, uh, we, we met through our, our mutual friends, um, Amber Hikes and Judy Sullivan and mm-hmm. Chaz Howard. We, we were on a panel talking about Polly Murray yeah. and, uh, the Amazon documentary. I looked over your CV. I looked over... Uh, the different places where you can your bio can be found on the internet mm-hmm. and i cannot believe how incredibly busy you must be all the time <laughs> um and i think i i think i know that that you are married you have a spouse and you have a fur baby yes um, two fur babies two fur babies mm-hmm. um what are their names the dog is coco the coon hound Wow. Who is a pandemic addition okay. to our family. Okay. And Mercy, the black cat. Okay. Uh, who we've had for six years now. Okay. Who runs things. Got it. And they are siblings in every sense of the word. <laughs> <laughs> our second fur baby is Mercy, the black cat. Mm. We got Mercy six years ago. Mercy was three months old uh-huh. and precious and chose us. We Ooh. went to the pause the for local, another the local, the local adoption yeah. agency for another cat that we saw on the pause website. Yep. We get there and we find out that that cat had been adopted. Oh. Had already found a, a forever home. So we kind of disappointedly walk through the aisles anyway, and this little black cat, three months old, reached his paw through the little crate thing oh and i knew that that was that cat selecting (laughs) selecting me so we at the time had another older cat named grace oh and because i'm a minister because my wife is also an ordained minister yes we had to be churchy about it and so we named the new fur baby mercy so that we had grace and mercy in our household (laughs) the two cats so does that mean um, I, I I know you to be a Christian minister? Mm-hmm. I happen to be um, I, I happen to be in the Christian tra- one of the Christian traditions as well. Um, depending on which which tradition you belong to, the third well fourth fur ba- fur baby could have many different names like condemnation, <laughs> um, righteousness. I don't know. White supremacy, <laughs> righteousness, um, more. What's if you could if you could adopt a fourth fur baby tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Which of the Christian virtues or vices? <laughs> uh, let's use a more generic term: attributes. Uh-huh. Would you like? Would you like to call them? We have entertained the idea of naming a fur baby Justice. Uh. 
Coco's middle name is Joy. Mm. So we're bringing in the fruit of the spirit. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> but we named Coco Coco because she was adopted during the coronavirus. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, and she is our joy during COVID. So her name is Coco Joy. But justice is the next in line if we if we expand our family even more. Yes. <laughs> yes. This thought of justice. Uh-huh. Um, that... That that being one of the concerns that I have with the work of this podcast, I, I know you to be a person whose career has had you navigating the line of faith in public spheres, faith in congregations, navigating that that line between both. If there is a line, I, I don't know if there is a line. Right. What for you, at least for right now, what does it feel like communities of faith what do you feel like their role is in the work of justice Mm. i think first of all faith communities have a confessional role yeah in making justice for the world i think that religious systems have been complicit and in fact instigators of injustice throughout human history. And so the first thing, before we jump in acting like we're going to save the day, we need to confess our role in creating the mess that we currently are challenged by. The implication there is that we haven't, Mm -hmm. in in communities of faith, that we haven't. So I I want to... I will want to dig into that a little more. If it is true that religious communities either haven't or have had historically a difficult time confessing their role in miscarriages, perhaps perversions, or outright denials of justice, <laughs> I wonder if you can work with me on the question of why that might be. Well, I think that there's a way in which faith communities have rationalized our role in making injustice. Yeah. Because the other percent of the time, we were doing charitable things. We were devout. We were pious. We quoted our sacred texts and we built institutions uh, that extended benevolence to the vulnerable, right? There was this way that we, perhaps in proportion to the injustice that we made, we have made um, some great things. We have done some great things. We have contributed to a landscape of generosity and um, benevolence. So I think that we've been in denial and we've delayed this confession Eh. because we know that we've been part of some good things too. Uh, And so it's hard for us to see ourselves as responsible for the bad stuff. I wonder... I, I happen to be Anglican, at least for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we talk a lot about the via media, the, the notion of, of a middle way, which I suppose more loosely translated could, could to be, could, could, could extend to saying being able to hold things in tension, uh -huh. like competing ideas in tension. Uh -huh. I wonder, are we, as, as faith communities, I wonder, or, or, and, and specifically Christian faith communities, how do we hold all of those things? We have, we have denial, as you've identified. Uh -huh. We have this incredible sense of generosity, as you've identified. We have a history of, of suppression of different ideas and violence against the people who express. Yeah. What does justice look like for the people whose ideas have been snuffed uh -huh. by our our holding these things in tension. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, on my worst days, and by worst days I mean the days I don't claim the identity of Christian because it's um, too painful to do so too enraging to do so on my worst days yeah i think that justice looks like abandoning a tradition that first abandoned us it looks like refusing to beg to belong to a body we were born in to uh. and by that i mean we are, I believe that all of creation is born into God's belovedness. You don't have to earn your way there. You don't have to believe your way there. You are born into God's belovedness. And that birthright has been hidden from us, stolen from us, denied us. And sometimes the most loving thing, the most just thing is a time of separation. I'm thinking about the womanist framework and the definition of womanism as articulated first by Alice Walker. Yep. And part of the definition includes not a separatist except periodically for health. That's what a womanist is. Yes. That there are times for health reasons that we need to separate, we need to abandon that which seems to be abandoning us. And so what the church, the Christian church can do, should do, is let us go, is release us, is surrender to our refusal um, on my worst days. That's what I think. Yes. I think we have to leave for health. And that is the most just thing we can do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, 
On a good day. Yes. Good <laughs> good days. Yes. On a good day, not, I... Not all days are bad not days. Not all days are bad days. We give thanks. <laughs> yes, absolutely we do. Um, I think justice looks like faith as a freedom. You know, I'm reminded of, you know, and I don't quote Paul a lot, <laughs> but I'm reminded of what he wrote in Galatians 5, that for freedom we are set free. The freedom available to us in faith, in Christian traditions, in Jesus, is its own reward. We we are set free to be free. And that freedom is not a means to an end. That freedom is not um, a gift we should then give back to the church. You know, we are freed to be free. Freedom does not come with contractual obligations, stipulations, or otherwise riders. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I would love to get even a little bit more granular. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I... One one of the things I, I wrote my master's thesis about the subcultural language of Christian traditions and and the way that we use language to represent other things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there are there are few traditions I think where there is a level of insider knowledge than than Protestant Christianity. We say one particular thing. You and I may have a sense of of what it means. We, we even between the two of us who happen to work in faith traditions know a lot of folks in common will still have have shades of meaning different different in that language sure thinking about the language of leaving the christian church um i wonder if you can say a little bit more when we talk about leaving leaving things for health eh. when you use um, the phrase leaving the specifically the Christian church can you say a little bit more about what that means uh-huh. for let me say what it has meant for me sure for me there first needed to be um, an intellectual abandonment like so for me I had to walk away from ideas yeah. that were no longer serving me or those I love deeply. Yeah. So before I literally left the Christian churches that I felt had abandoned me, I had to mentally separate uh. from, I stopped nodding along like, a robot. Yeah. When yeah. I was supposed to be yeah. nodding, right? I stopped saying amen. Yes. When I was supposed to be saying amen, there there was an intellectual detachment mm-hmm. necessary. Yeah. A suspension of disbelief. Exactly. Um so I feel like I was a skeptic. Yeah. First. I did not uh take as gospel, to use that word. Oh, boy. Um, all the things that I had found authoritative yeah. before. Yeah. So there was like 
a leaving in the mind first. Mm-hmm. And then um, my body sort of followed. It was like, and, and for me growing up in black Christian spaces that are deeply embodied. Yeah, yeah. That was the hardest thing. Because my body has been trained in some ways to do the things, to to do faith. The times I'm supposed to lift my hands, the time I'm supposed to bow my head, my body knows to do that. It's like this choreographed faith. Yeah. And I felt most sad about leaving with my body. Yeah. Because the world would have us be disembodied. And so for me, that part of my Christian identity was and is dear to me. Yeah. It's like my mind can't go with you, but my body can. My body wants to. So, so yeah, for me, it, it leaving the church meant detaching myself from the ideas and eventually the spaces that were created and promoted without me in mind yeah uh and so that means that i'm kind of a (laughs) i'm in the wilderness of christianity yeah you know i i still know the language i still know the the jokes Uh i still Uh know the tunes i i still Uh yeah know it but i am not a part of it i'm in a wilderness space Somehow, um, so, somehow you're 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 observing. You 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 might you might be on the periphery, watching, yes, yes. Wa- watching watching from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but p- perhaps a less enjoyable event than say the Phil's game four, um, <laughs> locking out the bottom of the ninth. Mm. I think I just made a second. I was gonna reference. say. I told I you, like, Damn. you're all you're almost <laughs> there. Listen. <laughs> um, the thing that I that I find to be so haunting about that is is you talked about how this this language of embodiment is so important. Um, I I I will admit that my formation and understanding of black church traditions is very limited to what time that I spent reading and in, in seminary. Okay. Um, so, so I don't claim to have any of this language by virtue of personal experience, but it seems reasonable to be able to say that both your, the the tradition of the black church that, that you're talking about claiming and my experience of of Anglicanism care very much about embodiment. We would use the language of incarnation. Uh-huh. In particular, the the Anglican Church loves the language of sacrament as as the symbolic action of a, of an inward and also worldwide, universal, metaphysical, spiritual reality. Uh-huh. But you've just described how 
there is there there is a certain a certain reality in which our churches feel perhaps our churches or at least people could reasonably feel perhaps even not not only reasonably but perhaps even might commonly feel a sense of disembodiment uh-huh. in their pews i i wonder do you think the one do you think the problem is as bad as as i suspect i'm increasingly feeling that it is that 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 a large swath of people in our faith traditions feel a sense of disembodiment and if that's true what do what do we as spiritual leaders what is our responsibility to that sense of disembodiment i do think that the church the christian church is facing a crisis of of disembodiment i think that's the only way we can justify rationalize and tolerate the hypocrisies yeah the um denials yeah that are happening right in our spaces right under our noses never yeah. mind what's going on in the world outside of the four-walled church yeah you got to leave your body to avoid being overcome with despair, with grief, with rage, with with loneliness, with with doubt. Yeah. How can you be in this world and not be utterly bereft of The world is heartbreaking. Yeah. And and yet many Christian churches don't seem to be. Yeah. So I wonder how can that be? And and to me that is because we've left our bodies. I even think about it on the other side or in another way the the awe-inspiring wonder of life of creation of the divine yeah it feels like we ain't feeling that either (laughs) where's the joy in to be cliche where's the joy in jesus what what uh. what what about my faith about my walk with spirit uh-huh. is giving me is animating my life giving me a peace that passes all understanding or giving me um inspiring me to be kind and gentle to everyone I encounter, kind and gentle to myself. That's fair. There should be something different 
about me. If I am walking with the divine. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this political moment is showing us that people who are professing Jesus can be just as mean and just as indifferent and apathetic and hostile and violent as one who is not claiming to be walking with Jesus. And so I just think you got to leave your body in order to maintain that kind of posture. Yeah. I was watching a, a British news program and they talked about they were they were talking about about um our senatorial race um so so apparent apparently pennsylvania is is making news for all of the wrong reasons in spite of all of the all of the unpleasantness around the 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 prime minister transition right Mm -hmm. Um, apparently we are making noise wow in, in england Wow. Um, so that's a thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wish that I cared more about 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 politics and and, and about how important this is. I've 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 voted, but this question of the level of disembodiment, my friends in in the work of mental health would probably use the language of dissociation. Mm-hmm. But particularly, I'm going to coin a phrase. We'll say theological dissociation mm. around this language of the usage of the name of Jesus <laughs> and all of the all of the co- Christian codings that you are describing that go along with that around pro- professing following the teachings of Jesus or more evangelical language might be to have Jesus in one's heart yeah. or more mainline language would be to have professed Jesus in baptism, mm-hmm. whatever whatever language that, that you have that pertains to Christian initiation. Mm-hmm. I wonder why people feel like they still need to claim the language of Jesus if their behavior demonstrates that they are perhaps... I, su- I suppose I suppose a, a, a more gracious language would be to say perhaps uninformed of, of what the teachings of Jesus actually are mm-hmm. or or a more pragmatic language would be uninterested mm-hmm. in the actual teachings mm-hmm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, having grown up in a, it couldn't be rightly called an evangelical context, but sure, um, certainly proximate to it, Sure. Uh, sort of word of faith tradition. Um, I just remember the th- the theme was that Jesus wins. Uh. That Jesus is victorious and so are you. In fact, it is your right to be victorious. It is oh. your destiny okay. in God okay. to be victorious. So never mind... Never mind what actually happened to Jesus. Never mind that he was declared an enemy of the state and 
thusly executed, never mind yeah. his sense of chronic alienation and rejection, never mind that. Loneliness. Loneliness. Poverty. Being misunderstood. Poverty, literal poverty. Never mind that. Christus Victor. Jesus yeah. is victorious. Jesus wins. And if you just excerpt that soundbite from the le- the life and narrative and, and work of Jesus, yeah. and you carry that as your representation of what it means to follow Jesus, in an American context where competition is valorized and winners are instantly gods. Yeah. It it makes a lot of sense for people to to violently seek to overtake the capital yeah. in the name of Jesus. Yeah. How dare you rob me of my right? to win at everything I want to win. So I, what I've been sitting with as a minister who tries to be a theologian, tries to sure. think thoughtfully <laughs> about these matters, I've been sitting with the notion that Jesus is a loser. Would you follow a losing Jesus? Uh. Would you follow God if what that guaranteed was, as my friend and mentor, Reverend Lenise Pinkert says, guarantees a downward mobility. Uh, she uh, talks about this notion of the downward mobility of God. I would dare say that many people would get off the train, the Jesus train. Yeah, yeah. If we framed it as Jesus was actually unsuccessful. The Jesus movement was cut off. Yeah. Yeah. Violently broken up. People in the movement turned against each other, turned against Jesus, denied, betrayed. I mean, this is a mess. Now I get in trouble because, you know, then who wants to who wants to participate in that? You know, <laughs> and that's not yeah. a good marketing strategy. No, uh, not at all. <laughs> and wait a minute, aren't we supposed to spiritualize that execution? Yeah, and see the resurrection at forget the forget the crucifixion. Isn't the pain of the crucifixion eliminated by? the joy of the resurrection. Well, I, you know, I don't know that it is. And so I've been, I've been trying to think through this idea that following Jesus means following one who may lose when the terms are, the conditions are set by a society yeah. rife with greed and competition and yeah. individuality, individualism. Mm-hmm. We lose in that kind of context. Where we are victorious is we 
gain our souls, to use that biblical language. Yes. We gain the assurance that only radical love and radical vulnerability can provide. Yes. The, you pointed out something that, that I am observing represents a change in my own thoughts and where, and the systems that I, I normally, normally serve as like my go-to scapegoats for the adulteration of Christianity. And for me, it is usually late stage capitalism. I'm usually of the mindset that capitalism is destroying Christianity because Christianity has been in bed with power since Constantine, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Since, since the, 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 the founding of the Holy Roman empire. But the distinction that you've made is that it goes even beyond that uh-huh. because capitalism at least as as much as I understand it, thank you, 10th grade civics, <laughs> et cetera, Adam Smith, <laughs> the invisible <laughs> hand, all of, all of that noise. Um, my understanding is that the system of capitalism is, yes, that the best ideas win are the most competitive, but there is no guarantee that anyone has the best idea because the best idea is a pure concept in and of itself. Mm-hmm. The best idea is the best idea. It doesn't matter who it comes from, but the best idea is the best idea. Mm-hmm. The distinction that I think that I hear you making is that if a person in, in this in this description of, of of Christianity, the failure as as one of my friends. Um, as one of one of my my thought partners, Willie James Jennings, would say, is that the failure of the Christian imagination it is. is that, to your point, is that we suddenly assume that because we profess following the teachings of Jesus, is that we assume that we have the best idea. Yes. So it's not it's not even capitalism. Uh-huh. We're beyond. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um. You just kind of, you kind of just blew my mind a bit. <laughs> um, I I promise I promise that not all of the interview is intended to be this heavy and <laughs> bleak. Um, I I feel like I, I feel like there there needs to be a return at at some point to like yay Phil's the streets. <laughs> will, I I mean what other what other what other city could? I I, I mean we have a we have a ton of of Anglo-Catholics, like Anglican Catholics here. What other, we have, we have a, a lot of Eastern European, um, Orthodox traditions here. And yep. cer- certainly a lot of, a lot of other Christian traditions as well, beyond each other, all, all of the other incredible traditions of faith, spirituality, no faith that are, that are represented. Mm-hmm. But suffice it to say, um, the, the, the palate cleanser that, I, that I'm pointing to is that what other city would need to grease its street lamps in order to prevent people <laughs> from climbing <laughs> them? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, d- I do want to pivot a little bit mm-hmm. um, to give us an opportunity to breathe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is something that I was taught um, in uh, among 
frankly, a lot of black mentors, um, actually all of whom are women or, or, or female bodied people, female identifying people. Um, and, and they, that I had the privilege of sitting at the feet at, and they, they told me something that I see internalized in you very, from, from every interaction that I've heard, whether it's sending emails today, our previous chats to prepare for the interview is that you have to protect your spark. You have to protect your energy because everyone will ask for all of it from you always. Uh-huh. And that is a lesson that me in the space of model minority and Asian exceptionalism that I am still learning. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is that what is your caffeine regimen like? Oh. Are you are you a heavy caffeinator? Are you a light caffeinator? Are you a sugar person? Where, because you have, in, in watching your sermons, in attending some of the incredibly useful and pragmatic webinars that you've hosted for the city of Philadelphia, especially during COVID. Mm-hmm. You have an incredible output of work that I just do not understand how you do all of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I can't believe that, that you're here today because I know tomorrow you're hosting an incredible symposium at 10. <laughs> so mm-hmm. where does the capacity to, where, do, where does the wellspring come from and how do you protect it? Mm-hmm. I'm a sugar person, let me yes, say. Yes, you are. Awesome. I'm a sugar person. Awesome. Um, who... I mean, until recently, didn't need, and I'm I'm doing that in air quotes, a lot of sleep. Wow. I have always been kind of this night owl person, and yeah, I don't get tired until yeah late, and you know I can get up early if I need to, and be ready to go after I get a shower. I'm good. Yeah, but more than that. I only am able to, I subsist on the love and care of of people who want to see me alive. Mm. People who perhaps, you know, understand what I'm trying to do in the world and want me to do it. And so they're like, listen, she needs to, right before I came here, I had um, some breakfast meetings and then I had to teach a class of undergrads. Yeah, let's, let's, we'll come back to the fact that you teach at both Villanova (laughs) and Harvard. You added Harvard, Harvard Divinity School to your list of, well, your a fellow there, but you're a faculty person. To your list of faculty appointments, um, yeah, yeah. Well, so I I taught this class, and I was going to come straight to West Philly, where we are now. Sure. sure. And so to just hang out, I got my laptop. I can do some emails or whatever, and wait for the time to meet with you. But my wife texts me and says, "Why don't you come home after class?" 
sit down, get you something to eat, make sure you're ready to go. Yeah. Like those kinds of things, that is caring for me when I would not care for myself. I would yeah. have just gotten in the car and headed here, you know, and kind of putzed around and maybe I'd pick up, you know, a donut from someplace. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have given myself the rest, the hour and change or whatever it was yeah. of rest. And in fairness to you, we do have a Jimmy John's in the lobby, so that so you have Listen, you have options. I would have had better options. <laughs> Let me just run into the Wawa, right? Um, so I know that I don't do this. I would not be able to do anything if others were not minding my business. Uh-huh. To put it that way, if others were not like sending me a text to be like, yeah. "Did you eat today?" <laughs> or um, if I knew that my dog yeah. wasn't going to be delighted to see me and so I rush home just to get a little love from my dog and that gets me to the next. So I guess what I'm saying is I no, I don't have endless capacity or energy. Yeah, My brain is fried just like everybody else's brain i mean i you know i'm living through the pandemic with the rest of us yes yes but i'm able to you know i'm thinking about moses having health yeah Yeah. lifting his arms i'm only able to do it because somebody's helping me keep my arms up the other thing i'm trying to do is more strategically connect these categories of work yeah so you know I would not accept an offer to be a fellow at Harvard if it was in like the business school and I was doing right. something that had no connection to anything else. Right, right. So I, I see all of my work as related and that helps me yeah. keep it together. <laughs> the, the entrepreneur in me would say that all of the work that you do is mission and vision aligned. Well, yeah. Yeah. And then the disabled person in me would say that you have your team. Yeah. Around you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the cute thing loving person in me says that you have your fur babies around you. Oh my goodness. I had no idea. I mean people talk about, you know, how their animals save their lives and who rescued who and all of sure. these things we say. Sure. I did not know. Even with just having yeah. the cats. Yeah. You know, cuz our cat is, you know, wants to be bothered when he wants to be bothered. And if he doesn't, right. we might not see him. <laughs> He's not attending to us all the time. Yes. Yes. But Coco, our dog, is always attending to us uh. and loves us unconditionally. Uh. And I didn't know, uh, you know, I'm not sure that human beings can can really do that unconditional love thing. Like, mm. our love has some conditions. Mm. Now, the people who love us the deepest might have few the fewest conditions. Yeah. But I don't know that we're able to fully give ourselves over to love. I, I, that's an aspirational yeah. destination, I think. I mean, among other things, we don't love very well when we're hangry. Listen... Listen, if I have not had my snack or if I'm tired or whatever, 
I, I'm not going to be very loving. I'm not going to be my most loving self. Yeah. But that Coco, let me tell you, <laughs> she, she just looks at us with such love. Uh-huh. And that has really saved us in this pandemic. I'm telling you. Um, Can I ask what breed Coco is? Coco is a coon hound. We think she's got a little bit of uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback in her. Oh, man. She's a beautiful uh, sort of, how do I want to say, like a caramel uh. color with the sleekest coat. Uh. And um, she's got a little trauma in her history, we can tell. So it feels even more like a gift yeah. for her to open herself up to us yeah. and trust us and love us. So, yes, I get by with a little help from my friends. That's what I say all the time. Yeah? Yeah. Or is it the... Um, is it... The 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 Beatles getting by is it the Joe Cocker getting by? It's Joe Cocker. It's Joe Cocker. It's Joe Cocker. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I I think Joe Cocker was my first introduction because Mine too. to to that song <laughs> um, because of the Wonder the Wonder Years. Years. Yep, right. Yep. Which another show that has like an incredible reboot presently. Yes. Yeah. They're they're on a roll here with these reboots. I don't know. Yeah. If we were all just feeling nostalgic or something and we want to, it, it almost feels like a tribute to those shows, like how they were so formative for us. Yeah. We can now offer that as a gift to a new generation of people. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect um, friend of the show, Tarek Davis, who doing incredible things in late night, he talks about how in COVID it became clear that we all had, we all have a, lo- a need for comfort. Yeah. Uh, we we all have this need for for comfort media, yeah. And that's um, and, and and reboots can do that. Oh, yeah. Um, except the I I think the challenge that we're finding with reboots is like, well, well, there's there's now a show called Reboot. There's a we've gotten so meta that there's a show about reboots called Reboot. Um, but. There's there's this question is like well what is this thing that that makes us feel nostalgic and are we still allowed to love it in spite of mm-hmm. the challenges that we face in in yeah in how it makes us feel right you know right right I I don't know yeah. um mm-hmm. I, I I I I I don't have an answer um yeah may, maybe one could say the same thing broadly speaking about about 21st century Christianity I I have are are we are we are we are we still especially now that and now that voices which have previously been silenced have more more space in the spiritual conversation um to use my language as it seems like christianity is noticeably Losing its moral authority. Uh-huh. How do we still love Christianity? How do we still love... And, and and perhaps, like, not even how do we love the teachings of Jesus, because I'm not sure... I'm not actually sure that there's a problem with the teachings of Jesus. Right. Right? Right. But, like, how do we... How do we love a lot of the custom... Sure. ...that go along, that we've attached, that go along with the teachings of Jesus? Yes. 
Yeah. That's, I think that's right on. There's a, yeah. there's a wistfulness I yeah. have. I long for sometimes the black church of my upbringing yeah. where the mothers, the older women who now I sit here and I'm like, they weren't actually that old. I don't know what, <laughs> but as a kid, you're thinking everybody, these women who smelled good and looked good and were good who became my my parents, my grandparents in their absence, who I knew without a shadow, beyond a shadow of a doubt, loved me and would take care of me. I miss them. I miss hearing the intro to a song played on the Hammond B3 organ. And the first couple of notes, it was like, name that tune. Name that tune in two notes, right? Yeah. The first couple of notes, everybody understood what was getting ready to happen. It was kind of an acoustic theology, an acoustic spirituality. Yeah. I missed that. Yeah. Uh, I missed the frenzy, the the ecstasy of worship, uh, the sensuality of worship. There was all of this embedded mess in it, <laughs> but there was something about the potency of the feeling. I missed that. So I think those things can be trappings for, as you say, the stuff that has de- that has attached itself to Jesus, and yet it comforts me. Yeah, yeah. The cadence of the preacher, who is saying some mess that I don't agree with, that is harmful, violent, ignorant. But there's something about the cadence that helps me remember that I belong, that feels like a language only I can understand, only we can understand, right? So that, yeah, I think. Uh. So the the perennial question for me has been, how, how do I... Or do I maintain a relationship with this thing? Is it like a wistful, oh, I had this wonderful memory and now it's gone. Do I need to be more intimately involved in it? So yes, there's an estrangement. It's like being estranged from a family member. It's like when I look at them, I see myself. Yeah. I look like them. I come from them. Yeah. And yet I there's this sobering reality that we are estranged for good reasons. Yes. And I gotta separate for health. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There is that real messy piece of embodiment again. Mm. What what are the parts that we know that we need to be embodied? into and what for 
for our well-being? Mm-hmm. What are the parts that we need to, that we know for certain that we need to, to step back from uh, and to detach from? Right. And all of the rest that's somewhere in the middle that we have yet to to disentangle. How do we continue to live while all of that mess is is in flux? Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I want to pivot a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um. You more than anyone else I know have this commitment to bringing praxis into every piece of work that I've seen you do. And I want to think a little bit about the teaching that you do. Okay. I want to think a little bit about the role, about, about the, the possibility that seminaries represent specifically thinking about the work that you do because recently you started in this incredible um, religion and public life fellow role at harvard uh-huh. you've been teaching at villanova for quite some time uh-huh. i'm thinking also about how there are fewer faith communities and not just christian churches that can afford to have a full-time clergy person oh, staffing that? them looking after them and yet, seminaries continue to enroll, continue to, at least my alma mater, Yale, um, it is not cheap to go to school there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, I wonder, what do you see the role of institutions of theological higher learning being yeah. in forming faith and spiritual communities of the future. It hits, it hits. I accepted this fellowship at Harvard in part because I was so inspired by the way Harvard Divinity School is uh, trying to, in some ways, provoke a movement yeah. among people of faith, leaders of faith. Yeah scholars of religion who may not necessarily claim a confessional relationship to faith. Sure. Uh, The Religion and Public Life program has a cornerstone course called Religious Literacy and the Professions. And this is the course that I am teaching in collaboration with the other fellows. The the general idea is that in various professions, in industry, one needs to be religi- religiously literate. Yep. One needs to understand how religion and religious systems have shaped those professions yep. and the concerns um, relevant to those professions. Um that to me is a remarkable way to remind us how relevant theology is theologizing is it it's equipping folks who are not the usual suspects and i have that in quotes uh-huh. in air quotes 
with the tools to claim a certain kind of expertise and authority around religious engagement wherever they find themselves. Not everybody is training for the pulpit or for a congregational sure. setting. And sure. yet, clearly, back to this political moment, we see that religion finds its way into the crevices of all industry. Yes. Um, and I think the, the, the other element of this program that was attractive to me is I'm always concerned about how faith is done in public. Having grown up in an environment where I was encouraged to, in some ways, glorify the private element of my faith, what I sure. do in my prayer closet, sure. when I'm on my knees, when I, what I whisper to God when I'm alone, you know, these kinds of, you, you know, we think of intimacy, yeah. we thought of intimacy as not simply personal, but also private secret. Yeah. The, um, the intriguing bits and, of Christian tradition, the bits that Chris, like Christian pop songs get written about. Right. <laughs> right, right. You know, my alone time with Jesus kind of thing. And, and, and yeah, we're not going to touch that. I, I'm not going to touch that. One, <laughs> right. And so as a tangent, I will say that 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 yeah. breeds a kind of holiness for secrecy. Yeah. For privacy. Yeah. Which is the foundation for all of the mess, the scandals that eventually come to the light, right? Yeah. What people are doing in secret, yeah. behind closed doors. Because that's how I do Jesus. That's how I do my faith, right? I'm interested in how faith shows up in public. What yeah. are the public inf implications of being faithful, yeah. right? Yep. Um, and this program tries to, to get at those questions. Um, tries to expose the cultural embeddedness of religion. Yeah. Um, so I like that. It's kind of like turning the light on. I think that's what theological education can be. Uh, can we turn the light on? Uh, and be willing to not sort of escape to the corners where there's darkness. You know how you turn the light on and the sure, spider sure, will yeah, go, yeah, you know. Yep, yep. But can we turn the light on and stand in the light and allow people to see us and to know us and uh, critique us? Um, so I think theological education has to be not, you know, sort of we have this this scriptural uh, uh, motto that we're in the world and not of the world. Well, I think, you know, again, there's that element of being in hiding or being. Yeah. I think the theological education needs to move into the light, needs to see itself as a, a part of community. You know, we're sitting here, you know, sort of, you know, at Penn, at Drexel, kind of this sweet spot. The University uh, City Science the University, Center. Yeah. We're, 
we are um, on on land that is formerly occupied by the Lenape community. Yes, um, we're on land that was formerly occupied by the Black Bottom community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, just like these university institutions have to figure out how to be a member of the community. You yeah. are not a world unto yourself. Yeah, and when you try to be, you do harm. Yeah, because. This was a community before Penn was oh yes a, a thought in anybody's mind before Drexel was a thought in anybody's mind. So oh, yes, in the same yes. way, I think our theological institutions have to see themselves as members of a community, as responsible and accountable to those communities, and see themselves as preparing people for community. Um, yeah. and you know that's why i'm i'm working with harvard because i see that you know they they get at least some element of that oh. mm-hmm. which is which i would say is a contrast to the conventional model of seminary where all of the where where many seminaries are residential harvard is the same uh-huh. al- although there are an increasing number of seminaries that are offering less uh cloistered yeah. experiences. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um where where one goes away to learn all of the secret language that no one else sitting in right. sitting in the, the faith community, the spiritual community does. Right. At, at least that was my experience at Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I had certainly and for good reason, because like it's it's important to to understand the the foundational documents of one's system of belief, and the how we got to where we are. And it's certainly my experience that there are very few opportunities to spend that time thinking about those things sure. elsewhere. Sure. Right. Yep. But at the same time, as you've identified, what do those things matter if we don't figure out how they actually are executed in daily life? Sure. Yeah. Um, we are drawing close to the end of our time. So I have one final question for you. What do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? You. My goodness. I uh, increasingly get notes on social media from people I, I don't know, never met. Yeah who say I was Googling or I was, I happened to be, you know, eavesdropping on a conversation or whatever, and I heard your name. And I'm reaching out to you because I didn't think people like you existed. Nobody told me. In fact, what people told me was that nobody like you existed. You are black, you are queer, you are unafraid to speak the truth as you understand it. And I didn't think you were ordained. Yes. And I didn't think that was a thing. I want to leave this world No longer being like 
a surprise, an impossibility. Like, I want to leave this world smiling because I'm not exceptional. No. I know a lot of people like me. You know, and I've curated a world in which, you know, the, the, the misfits, the exiled, you know, we all connect in the wilderness. You found your tribe. We found each other. Yeah. But I wish that you didn't have to go to the wilderness to uh. see us, to know us, to join us. I wish that nobody thought of themselves as an impossibility. Home. Like nobody has to wonder. I wonder if there are other people like me. Because that's just a lonely reality to think how I'm the only one like me. We we in our in our culture, in American culture, we think of uniqueness as like a badge of honor, like I'm one of one. There's nobody like me, right? And we But we don't talk about how lonely that is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's nobody else like me, baby, <laughs> in the universe. But I want to know that there are people who share in my sort of weirdo way of being who have found a way to have interests that to other people are disparate and mm. nonsensical, but you think that that makes total sense and you share in that weirdness. Mm. I, I, I just, I want to imagine a world, try to bring forth a world where there's just blessing holiness. Um, and, you know, if I refer back to my faith formation, you know, I was always taught that Jesus would be the ultimate friend. There is no, what's the, the hymn, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one, no, not one. Well, that's nice, but um, <laughs> I need more friends than Jesus. Uh, and a hug would be nice. I was going to say, you know, I need a friend's touch. I need a friend's call. I need to giggle with friends, Yeah. cry with friends, right? Yeah. And so that's, I think, ultimately what I'm trying to do. I want there to be less loneliness. Uh. Um, it's not even a prayer for a world free from all of the things that challenge us. Like, but damn it, do we have to live through an obstacle course kind of life by ourselves? Like, I can yep. make it if I got two or three or four folk. Okay. Who understand me? Who 
refuse to deny me joy and abundance. Yeah. Who take care of me when I don't have sense enough to take care of myself? Like, that's what I want for every human being. Yeah. And I happen to believe that the way of Jesus is a pathway to less loneliness. So I'm I'm on this path. <laughs> um but yeah, it always just breaks my heart when people are like, Huh? You you're real? Because that lets me know that there are still impossibilities in our collective imagination. Uh, so I think that's what I dream of. Um, I think the other thing that's closely related is I wish that this world could produce less, no shame. Because mm. I think when you feel like you're by yourself and you're you're odd and you're the only one like you and you're an impossibility yeah. and you can't fully be, yeah. you internalize that. Nobody is around to be like, no, 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 let me introduce you to or no, 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 you're, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. You are okay. You're fine. If you don't have anybody to say that to you and show you that, you start to feel ashamed. You start to think it's you that needs to be fixed. And so I know that a lot of my interior life has been uh, burdened by shame and loneliness. So maybe it's just, you know, it's it's me trying to create the kind of world like that little Naomi needed, that adult Naomi needs. Yeah. 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 My guest today has been the Reverend Naomi Washington Leapheart. Rest well tonight. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Once again, my biggest thanks to my guest, the Reverend Naomi Washington Leapheart, and commiserations to both the Phillies and the Eagles. You can subscribe to her channel on YouTube and follow her on Instagram and Twitter and find out more about her preaching and her work with the city of Philadelphia at the links in the episode description. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love, 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 love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.